Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Revelation chapter 10 and then reading through the first half of chapter 11. Listen carefully to God's word. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll opened in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come weak, independent. We recognize that we read great mysteries today, heavenly revelations given to your servant, John. They have been mystifying to many, but yet they contain your simple truth. They are written to us and they are for us. And so, God, we ask that you guide us into all truth this morning. We're dependent upon you for light and knowledge. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. March 15th, 1781, the army of Lord Charles Cornwallis fought and defeated the Continental Army, what is known as the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. I grew up a few blocks away from that. And so as a kid, my world was filled with colonials and redcoats running around fighting battles in my backyard. So it's just outside of modern-day Greensboro. However, the great irony of Cornwallis's victory was that shortly after winning, he recognized that this was only a technical victory. He had suffered great casualties. One British statesman quipped after the battle, another such victory would ruin the British army. Green understood and strategically retreated after inflicting the casualties. And this set off a series of events that six months later led to Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown. It was the beginning of the end. But what is so ironic is that it was a defeat, a loss that led to the ultimate defeat of the British Army. It was a defeat inflicted on the colonial army that led to the defeat of the British army. As we approach chapters 10 and 11 of this letter called Revelation, the same type of irony applies to the events that are played out in the age of the church leading to the comprehensive victory of Jesus. Last week, we worked through the seven seals that were opened by the lamb who was slain. As he opens those seals, judgments were poured out. We saw that there were a series of six seals opened, and then there was something like a parenthesis or an interlude where we're told what God does on behalf of the church to protect the church during those difficult days. We saw that those seven seals are paralleled by seven trumpets, and then later seven bowls in chapter 16. And that these aren't referring to a chronological series of events that you can trace through history, but rather they're paralleling, telling about life for the church in the age between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And so it is critical to recognize that these seven trumpets are telling from a different angle the same story told by the opening of the seven seals. They explain those very same dynamics we'll find And it's helpful to reflect and observe that these trumpets, they follow the same pattern that we found in chapters 6 and 7. First, seven trumpets are blown. Then once again, we have a parenthesis or an interlude. And then the final trumpet is blown. And so let's gain some context about what's happening here in chapter 10, because these two chapters are perhaps some of the most bizarre, and they have been subject to some of the most exotic interpretations that you can find in all of the book of Revelation. The chapter begins with John encountering another mighty angel, we are told in verse 1. 
This angel is qualitatively different from all the other angels that we meet in the book of Revelation, and that signifies something for us. When you look into the details of how this angel is to describe and then what he is holding in his hand, it becomes apparent that this is a reference to Jesus because he has the scroll in his hand. And in chapter 5, we learned that there was only one who was worthy to take up the scroll and to open it. And so here John is encountering the living Christ once again in the vision, and he's told to go and take the scroll from the Lamb's hand. Finally, the message of the scroll that Jesus has opened in cutting the seals, now at last the mystery that is there upon the scroll is about to be disclosed. We're about to learn what is happening there. John is told that the scroll contains a bittersweet message. That is that there is comfort and there is difficulty. And so what follows in chapter 10 is rightly understood to be part of the contents of this scroll. We have something of a parable here in chapter 10 where we'll learn about two witnesses and the measuring of a temple. But it's telling the story of the church between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And it's unfolding the bittersweet message about what it looks like for God to unfold the great victory that King Jesus has won. So it's a simple task for us this morning. We're going to ask and answer the question, what does the scroll reveal? What is the mystery that God discloses there on the scroll as we read through chapter 10? There's five things that we're going to focus on and give attention to. First, we learn about our commission. If you follow in verse 3 in chapter 11, we'll discover here that that here you have the church commissioned to a certain task. Jesus says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Those two witnesses were commissioned to prophesy. That is, they were commissioned to teach. And they were commissioned to teach for a period of time. We're given that period of time in three different significations. 1,260 days three and a half years, or 42 months. Those are all referring to the same extent of time, and many people are puzzled. Why does it so repetitive? Why does John give us all these different combinations of numbers? It's important to apply our rule that to interpret a symbol literally means that you have to read it symbolically. <laughs> and John is loaded with symbolic references to numbers. Three and a half years was the length of the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And we'll see that these two witnesses that we find here in chapter 11, where the contents of the scroll is unfolded, these two witnesses, their lives parallel two Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. Now, what's also important to recognize is that we have 42 months. Israel, as they work through the wilderness, found themselves in 42 different encampments. And there with Moses, you have the plagues unfolding. And so then Israel's led out into the wilderness. And so this is all deeply textual. John schooled in the scriptures, bringing this out through his vision, a community that was schooled in understanding the Old Testament. And Jesus has the fulfillment of that. 
And so all these symbols had a rich resonance and had deep and profound meaning. And he is communicating that the church is represented by these two witnesses. And we are the people on the way through the wilderness to the promised land. We are heading towards a goal and a climax and a culmination of all of history. And so what's being unfolded here is that these two witnesses are commissioned to prophesy to the nations. You'll see in verse 4 that this becomes very clear. These two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's reference to the witnesses. And of course, the lampstands we saw in chapter 1 were representatives of the universal church, the church throughout time, spread throughout the nations. And so this is the commission that John sees, that the two witnesses are commissioned to live out their beliefs and their values that are subsequent to their faith in the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and they're to do so before the nations of the earth. And friends, that commission doesn't apply to a special class of Christians. It doesn't belong to the ordained clergy. It doesn't belong to the elders. It doesn't belong to the deacons. It doesn't belong to the missionary organizations. No, it belongs to everyone who joins with Jesus Christ and puts their faith in him. Those who've been ransomed by him in his blood, who have had their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. All of those who have been washed have been made a kingdom of priests. And that means that we have been ordained, commissioned to be witnesses of his. It's a high honor and dignity, not because we carry any self-importance, but rather because of the one that we represent the one who has sent us out, the one who has commissioned us. And we see here that we're commissioned by Jesus to be witnesses among the nations, to go and teach them to all the peoples, to all the tribes, to all the tongues, that there is forgiveness and there is life in God through Jesus and that God is bringing about the great culmination of history, and that God will once again reunite heaven and earth and make the world whole and right and free it from its disease and from its plagues and from all of its sadness that were introduced by human sin. That is what the witness is commissioned to do. But secondly, we learn that there's also a conflict. In verse 3, you see that the witnesses wear sackcloth. Those were the clothes that were appropriate to seasons of fasting and mourning. And this is the first indication we get that there is some true bitterness to the scroll that John took up and ate. You see, John was to digest that scroll. That means the message was to become part of him, that he was to deeply embrace both the sweetness of the scroll and also the bitterness. And here we find that difficulty. In verse 7, we learn further about the difficulty because there's a violent beast who arises from a pit to which he had been assigned. And this is a reference to Satan or to the devil. And he comes forth from his pit to wage war against the church. He's successful, you'll see in the story, and he kills them. See in verse 8, 
that the church is despised and it's dishonored. The bodies are left there in the street, not buried. This is all symbolic of the same shame that our Lord Jesus suffered. That this is the conflict that the church will enter into. That as we go out under the great victory of the lamb who was slain, who is yet a lion, that the church will join our Lord Jesus in that same shape of life. That as Jesus' victory throughout the world is implemented, that what will be required of the church in the implementation of that victory is self-denial and self-sacrifice. The laying down of our lives that can entail any number of things, but this is the way of the king. This is the way his victory is implemented here as the scroll reveals this great and profound mystery. It is an ironic victory that we're presented with here. And so, yes, the scroll presents the life-giving words of the gospel, sweet and comforting words. And yet it also presents to us the bitter message of the world's rejection and opposition to this sweet comfort that the world, in response to the death of these two witnesses, actually throws a party doesn't particularly care for the witnesses, doesn't agree with them, doesn't find their beliefs and values comport with their own and want to be done with them. There's an important question to address here, though. Why is there so much conflict? Why, if the witnesses, the the two lampstands, are simply preaching about God and the way to be reconciled with him, And they're to do so through this period in the church's history. If they're just speaking of the historical event of the death and resurrection of Jesus, why do people get so angry about it? Why is there so much conflict? It's a conflict that the church knows today and has always known across its 2,000 years of history. Why is that exactly? Friends, from the biblical perspective, it's really quite easy to understand because human beings from the very beginning have sought their own independence and their own autonomy. Remember that this was our initial rebellion. It wasn't just that we found a piece of fruit appealing. It was that Adam and Eve wanted to be the judge of good and evil. They wanted to decide what was right and wrong. This was not an arbitrary act. It was willful and volitional in which God was shaken off and put in his place so that Adam and Eve could be autonomous, that they could be the judge, that they could operate the way that they wanted to. And friends, that is what is true of sinful human beings. That is who we are, shaking off the yoke of submission, wanting to do things our own way. And that sinfulness has expressions in both religious and secular capacities. And we find it shot through our world. And so when the message of reconciliation that brings us back into a submissive relationship to God and in communion with him, it is no surprise that that is not greeted with great celebration because it strikes at the very fundamental threat, the very thing that Adam and Eve rebelled against. And this is what it means to be a sinful human is to want to go our own way. And so that's the heart of the conflict. 
And the conflict plays itself out throughout the history of the church. And yet the witness, the lampstands that are commissioned, that's the context in which their commission is worked out. Third thing we learn here, we also learn about our security. If you look at the first three verses of chapter 11, You'll note that John was given a strange task. He was to take a measuring rod that was like a staff. And he was told this, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. The temple in the book of Revelation represents the community of people who believe in Jesus and are gathered together into this spiritual temple. And so John is instructed to measure that temple. Now it's a strange metaphor for us. But if you were to dig into the book of Ezekiel, which I know you'll do with great eagerness this afternoon, chapters 40 through 48, you would find this same metaphor there. And there's a measuring that takes place. And the measuring is designed to communicate to the people that they are protected, that they are secured, that God knows his holy city and that he claims his own. That's the purpose of the metaphor, that there's a security for those who belong to Jesus, even though we have these seven trumpets blowing, even though we have this great conflict and chaos being played out as we're commissioned to go to the nations, that we're secure and we're safe. That yes, the witness suffers all kinds of things, but he'll suffer no ultimate harm because God holds him. And this is the deepest confidence of the Christian We saw the same message in chapter 7 where the Christians were sealed before the four horsemen rode out that they were protected and kept safe. And this is what the measuring of the temple complex once again communicates to us, that God establishes us and God keeps us, that God sets us apart as his own. And friends, this is the secret that the Christian must hold on to throughout life. Because there are any number of events that will disturb your security. There are any number of conflicts that you'll enter into because of the fallenness and the brokenness of our world. You will experience that and you will taste that. But the reason that that experience can be overcome is because you have tasted something else. You know the bitterness and the sweetness of this scroll that God has revealed. You know the secret behind all of world history. This is what the scroll discloses. It's granting you a vantage point behind all the events of the world, behind all the conflict between God and evil. And it's offering you this perspective and understanding that yes, the conflict will not overcome you. That God will use the conflict to overcome evil and defeat it at last in this ironic victory. And this is the deep confidence that we have. It's an unshakable core. But if we fail to digest that message, the bitterness and the sweetness of it, we will always be vexed by what takes place in life. But we're told about this security so that we not be vexed. Fourth, we also learn about resilience. The witnesses in chapter 11, they are defeated. And in the eyes of the world, they are despised and dishonored. They're mocked and they're killed. 
It's important for us always to reflect on church history without romantic lenses. Because if you were to read an honest account of church history, you would note that the church many times has seemed to be at its end. It's met fierce persecutions. It's met dismissal. It's met indifference. All of those are forms of spiritual warfare found throughout the church's history. But in verse 11, we see that after the witness is stifled, after the witness is brought to an end, that a renewal happens. This is a reference to Ezekiel 36. We're told that the witnesses are raised and they're called up to God. And some interpret this as a rapture that will take place right at the end of the world. And I don't believe that's the right way to read this at all. But rather the reference to Ezekiel 36 is speaking of the spiritual renewal of the people of God. That after the witness is defeated... That the church is renewed and strengthened and again continues its witness. That's the story that's being told and that's the story that we've seen worked out time and time again. That God again and again, he renews the church and he sets it forth to the nations to declare the ransom that has been paid to make a people from every tribe and tongue a kingdom of priests to our God and their sins are forgiven. And so the church even though defeated, is resilient by the power of God, strengthened by his spirit and sent back out into the nations. And so it's important to ask the question, though, what is the source of that resilience in the church? How is the church not overwhelmed with discouragement? This is a dark and difficult story that we find here in chapter 11. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 10, there's an important fact that's provided for us. It's kind of hidden there, and it's easy to overlook it. If you look in verse 2, we're told that the legs of Jesus were like pillars of fire, and he had a scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. In the ancient world, when you put your foot on something, it was to declare authority over it, that you were the one who had dominion and control. And so Jesus here is envisioned as putting one foot upon the sea and one foot upon the land. This has deep textual connections with further chapters in the book of Revelation, because what we'll find is that there is a dragon who stands upon the sands of the sea and he calls forth the beast from the sea. And so what is being said here is that Jesus is Lord even over the evil that occupies the world. That he is in authority over the sand and he is authority over the sea from where all the evil arises and he will not be overwhelmed by it. And friends, if the church is to be the church, if the church is to be resilient, if the church is to know how to persevere, to be good witnesses, this is the message that has to lie at the core, has to be buried down deep, the message that we have to digest and own, that Jesus is the Lord of lords, that Jesus is the King of kings, and that Jesus is the one who can even use evil for his own good purposes in bringing about the ultimate defeat of death, the defeat of sin, the defeat of evil and injustice. 
That is what's being envisioned for us here. And this is what is the source of the church's resilience. And finally, in the scroll, the scroll whose contents is revealed here in chapter 11, what we see is that we're reminded that all of this reaches a conclusion. If you follow past where we read into verse 15, you'll note the conclusion. We have the six trumpets. They're interrupted by this interlude, this parable, the unveiling of the scroll. But then we have the seventh trumpet. And notice what the seventh trumpet reveals. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The message is that the conflict does not continue. The message is also that the world does continue. But it is a world that's remade. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Yes, this is the biblical vision, not that God whisk you away into heaven for eternity to float upon a cloud and play a harp but rather that the world is made into the kingdom of God, that heaven and earth are reunited. They are open to one another, and all things are made right. Bodies are raised. Disease is removed. Sin is no more. That human autonomy and independence in which we are so deeply invested because of our sin and our tight hold on it, that this is healed. All of the conflict, all of the tragedy, all of the sorrow comes to an end, comes to a close, and God remakes the earth, purging it from sin, removing its deep disease and rebellion. Friends, at the heart of the Christian faith, in all the conflict, it is this future horizon, looking off into that event that continues to compel Because we know our Lord Jesus, he stands upon the sea and upon the shore. He is in all authority because he is the one who conquered death and rose. And then we're waiting. We're waiting for the great event upon return. When that victory is finally and fully implemented here upon the earth. And this is what the scroll reveals. It reveals how that victory will ultimately be implemented. And it reveals what we can expect from life between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And that we, God's people, Christ's church, have to digest this message. If we don't take in this bittersweet message, what happens to us is that the dynamics that unfold with the blowing of the trumpets and the opening of the seals and the pouring out of the bowls those dynamics will overtake you. They will leave you vexed and confused. But what the Christian has is a deep confidence that in the irony of history, in what appears to be a defeat, that we are identifying with Jesus and the way that he brought about his great victory and that God renews us and God strengthens us, God grants us resilience and that the witness will complete itself, that the witness to all the nations will come to an end and God will make all things right and God will wipe every tear from the eye.
The scroll offers us a perspective on history, a way to understand the fundamental conflict at the heart of it. And friends, this is the message that we need, that the fundamental conflict is not about political parties, it's not about nation states. It is about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And those two have been in opposition since our first parents rebelled. And yet God is bringing all of that to a conclusion. He won the great victory in Jesus, and now he is driving it towards the great final day. And so find your confidence in this scroll, all that it reveals, all that it discloses to you about your security. Know how to frame your sufferings and the difficulties you face, and be reminded that this concludes. God will have the last word, that he wins in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we recognize the great difficulty that these visions of John present to us. And yet they are spoken to us and they are for us. And so we ask that as you clarify the fog, that we would gain sight and understanding. That we would know the mystery that is disclosed in the scroll. That we are safe in Jesus Christ. We are your measured people, protected and secure. And that, yes, even though you ask us to walk into difficulty, as we serve as witnesses of yours, that you will allow no ultimate harm to befall us. Remind us again of the great conclusion of history and grant us the confidence and security that we belong to our Lord Jesus, who stands in all authority. We pray in his name. Amen.